Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today we're discussing the first season finale episode of Star Trek Picard, Et Inarcario Ego, Part 2. We are joined by Sam, who you may remember from our third and 24th episodes. <laughs> we wanted to bring her back specifically to talk about Seven of Nine. Hello. Sam, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Sam from episodes three and 24, I guess. <laughs> um, it's great to be back. Very excited to have been invited here to talk about my favorite Star Trek subject, Seven. Well, it's always delightful to have you. And I was just saying before we started recording that I kind of almost want to get every queer woman, every queer woman we know to call in and share feelings. There are so many feelings. So how do you feel overall about Seven's depiction in the series? Overall, I mean, she's such an interesting, complex, middle-aged, ass-kicking lady now. Yeah. And that's kind of cool. I'm a little sad. I mean, she seems so removed from her Voyager family. And I love Voyager because it's a family. So I'm kind of sad about that. I mean, I want to know why and, like, why. You know, I mean, I can imagine people like... Balana like working with the Fenris Rangers all the time because that's a Balana kind of thing. Yeah, one hundred percent agree. And I'm sure, like, I don't know what they're allowed, who they're allowed to use as far as character goes, who they wanted to use as far as characters goes. Mm. I mean, but it's it, the one. My one thing is, I feel like Seven would be in touch with her found family beyond Echeb. Yes, but other than that. I knew I would like it because I was like seven, but from the minute mm. she showed up, I was like, yes, this is exactly what I want. Could you make it more what I want? And then <laughs> I did each subsequent episode, so. <laughs> I almost wish, like, my only real complaint is that they remembered that she was a scientist as well as an action star. Yeah, and I, I mean, if she sticks around in season two, which it seems like she mm. will at this point, I, I hope that sort of comes out more. I mean, I think I would have loved her trying to figure out the board cube without immediately trying, like, assimilating herself so that, like, you can see some of that sciencey seven that she tries it, she gets frustrated, she's like, fine, I'm just gonna yeah, get her yeah. to the board. If we had had that episode separate from everything else that happened in an episode, then we would have been able to explore something like that. It was so weird nope. to me that this was a subplot. <laughs> yeah, like, I think my only, my only like, sort of narrative complaint, because the way she was portrayed I enjoyed, but I felt like we could have used a lot more of her, because yeah. she did end up being very important to the story, and particularly in that one episode where she's on the cube with Elnor, like, felt as if it was a very, like, afterthought of a plot, which was very strange for how important that plot was. Yeah, and also it's Seven, and it's just strange to see her relegated to an afterthought at all. Right. Absolutely. Especially in the middle of a board cube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think I said this on our episode about that episode, but on Voyager that would have been a full two-hour event on UPN. Right. Yes, and also Janeway would have blown the side of the ship out to come and help, but, you know. 100%. One thing I do like is that, as sad as it is that she's separated from her Voyager family, I really dislike that sort of toxic found family dynamic where they're like, oh no, we're a family, we're not going to let you go. And 
the Voyager team haven't done that. They've let her go off on her own and she's lonely and it's hard, but she needs this. She needs to be an individual within an organisation and not part of a smothering family unit. Voyager's always kind of been my heart's favourite Star Trek and uh, obviously there are the novels, various novels and things mm. like that, but like, particularly given that a lot of this contradicts things we've learned, like, I, I'm just so curious about what's happened to all of them and also yeah. like, what led Seven to be so different because she is, very, she's very emotional she's very, like, she still has the sort of tics and whatever of of who she was before, but she has a drinking problem, she, like, is a brawler, she's a murderer, and I just feel like, I mean, I think Seven would always have been the kind of person who thinks it's okay to kill someone if it's better to have them be dead than alive, but the, I mean, and and I like that, her line with Rios Mm. in this episode, where she, like, clearly has conflict, like, that shows she's grown, because Voyager Seven would have done it without a second thought, and it wouldn't have bothered Mm -hmm. her. Other than to have right. Janeway be like, that should have bothered you. And Seven be like, hmm. And then the credits roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I like that she's... <laughs> no, that's okay. I like that she's grown in that way. But also, like, why, why, where does that come from? Is It can't just be Icheb and the loss of Icheb and the betrayal of Bejazel. No. So I'm just curious. You know, I always want to know more about my favorite characters. And so... I, I really hope we get to dive into that. I mean, I hope we get to dive more into Rafi next season, too. And I, I read a synopsis of the prequel to Picard book, so I know there's some more info on her there. But, like, given all the information I found out from reading stuff after the last episode, I'm really <laughs> curious about her life now. Yeah, yeah. It would be cool to find out more about these characters beyond their relationship with the guy whose name is in the title. Right, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we got hints this season, and I like that. One of the mm. things I said on, on Twitter after this, and I know we're supposed to talk about Seven, but was that it felt like they were using this season as a prequel for the found family space adventures for season two. And I'm psyched for that, so I want to know more about these people. Yeah, I love these characters. Even Rios, I just like making fun of him at this point. But yeah, yeah I need more than just Picard at this stage. And hopefully, despite the title of the series, the, it, the story will open out beyond that, beyond him in season two. Uh, yeah. I think it was I, the user Disco Trek, that's T-R-E-Q-U-E on Tumblr, who described Seven in this era as being like Rios in that they both pretend to be a lot harder and tougher and less vulnerable than they really are. Yeah, that's why I really liked that last scene between the two of them, because on one hand, it was sort of like, have you ever talked to each other before? I think no. No. Right. But on the other hand, it was like, but they are kindred souls and they respond to that and they realize it within each other. And so they could become really good friends. And it's sort of fun for this really personal conversation about deep things to be like their meet cute yes that's kind of good I like the that has a lot of potential for as you say going into season two and seeing more of how all of these characters grow and grow together and they also both have interesting relationships with emergency holograms so I (laughs) yeah 
So I would it's love to see crazy. that. Like, what's going to happen the first time Seven sees one of the five Rios holograms? <laughs> oh, my just, gosh. I mean, I just am fascinated by, like, the ways these characters can intersect in non-obvious ways. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's very clear Michael Shaban Shaban is a huge fan and, like, knows what he's doing. Really? Well, I mean, <laughs> from a fan perspective, I think it is. Like, I think, I think Rios having five fragmented parts of himself that are holograms make him... In, well, maybe he doesn't. Maybe I'm giving him a lot of credit. I think it makes him an interesting foil for Seven, who had a very deep relationship with the emergency hologram. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look, I will definitely give Chabon credit for knowing what he's doing with male characters. Okay, fair. I, I think that, and I, okay, I just want to put it out there, I'm pretty sure I've not read a single thing that Michael Chabon has written, ever. So I know nothing about him as an author. I think that he reminds me a little of George Lucas, mm-hmm. in mm. that he's really good at telling a story, and coming up with ideas, and world building, but is kind of terrible at having those people talk to each other in an organic way. I, that makes sense. I still think you're giving him too much credit. I think George <laughs> Lucas's synthesis oh, well, of I mean, popular culture of his time is a lot more sophisticated than Chabon's. But also George Lucas had six hours and then the prequels. So, you know, Apple's uh, six hours, 12 hours. I don't know. He had three movies okay. and then three more movies. I mean, I, I am a huge Lucas apologist, so I would say that Lucas is the best storyteller mm. of modern times. Like, that's wow. just my, that's my personal opinion. And, and so, like, I'm not saying that he is a George Lucas. I'm saying I can sort of understand him from a George Lucas perspective. Okay, yes. In that he's more of a storyteller than a screenwriter. I would definitely buy that, and certainly I think it's the literary novelist thing of idea over character. Yes. I mean, you can definitely see that. And I, I, I've read his book, Cavalier and Clay, because everybody in my life recommended it to me. And, and I liked it, but I, I think you're right. It's a sort of novelist versus television or movie background mm. writer. I mean, television in particular mm. is very different to write for yeah. than a novel. And also specifically a literary novelist, because as I've said elsewhere, I'm a structure nerd. And I, I, one thing about genre novels, you know, science fiction, crime, most writing for children, is that it's extremely plot driven. And you can't have these side quests where people just go off and have a conversation and think about stuff without somehow using it to advance the plot. And, and right. I think that's a skill that Chabon has yet to develop. From his, like because I, I think his literary background hasn't really served him well as a television writer. Mm-hmm. I think he's very talented and I think he's got a lot of cool ideas. And if he was better at thinking outside his straight white man paradigm, that would be better. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, and this is sort of a hallmark of Star Trek, is that these that the people are writing who are writing the stories, and I think Disco a little bit less so, just based mm. on who's involved, but like are, the majority of them are straight white men and I mean it was created by a straight white man, and it's always their ideas of what people would be like in this utopia, or 
crumbling utopia or whatever. And it's always centered around the idea of like normalcy as a straight white man. And I, I think that's why like you can't this, there's no feminine women in this except a femme fatale android. And I think, you know, that's very telling for yeah. how he mm-hmm. views women's power. You know, all the, every single mother in this series has lost a child. It's, Really, like, there are Creepy. layers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the word I think you're looking for. Though I do like that Raffi lost a child through her own... Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it wasn't like he died. I mean, it was... I, I think there's something interesting about showing... It's very... Well, not very rare, but I think it's rare to see a woman in that situation where through her addiction she's lost her child she was the absent parent not the husband particularly in couples of color in fiction i was going to say that is not a rare storyline for women for black women is it not i mean maybe i i don't know like okay i have seen there was a heavily downvoted post on reddit uh where a black woman basically said aside from the cool conspiracy things this is your stereotypical deadbeat black mother who's an addict oh okay i mean i definitely defer to that i mean for sure i i from my experience i've seen it more deadbeat black fathers but that's oh yeah yeah 100 percent. i I think black people as parents don't get right in general deal in real life or in fiction but yeah so I, i kind of want to flag that the lost child motif is interesting to me but like annika says it's kind of creepy and it as you know, with the lack of feminine women who are not evil, it's just right. problematic. And right. I guess yeah. I find it extra frustrating because it did seem like for all its missteps, Discovery was working really hard to be intentional in its depiction and its subtext, especially in the first season. And this feels like such a step back. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that last shot on the bridge... I don't know. I mean, it's tough because I loved that last shot on the bridge. It's great. It was so yes. many women. The majority of people there were people of color. And, and I think... I guess when you sort of scratch below the surface, some of that... Like, you know, we're still not... And this is something I've always said about Star Trek. Is like, they can talk about how this is an allegory for this, and this is an allegory for this, and whatever, and this is what you see on screen. But in the reality, this is airing mm-hmm. in 2020. Mm. So does yeah. does the story hold up to the the cover and i think that's certainly worth talking about yeah. uh, it's something i've thought about a lot in the wake of the hand-holding scene <laughs> um, <laughs> and like it as i've sort of come down from my initial reaction to the hand-holding scene uh which i always refer to in caps now the hand-holding scene thank you um, thank you we will we will yeah. note that for the show notes yep. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, because my initial reaction was like, I'm a 16-year-old again. I'm excited. My favorite character has been officially put on screen as a queer character. And then I sort of, like, clicked around the internet and people were like, does this mean Seven's gay? Or does this mean Seven's bisexual? Or is Seven... And I'm like, well, if they can even ask that question, then I don't think the show yes. did its job. Yes. Right. Right. Um, because, like, to me... She showed up and shot her ex-girlfriend, and I was like, oh, Seven's gay. But, like, that's <laughs> me. And I'm, like, looking for certain coded things. And well, Yeah. Something uh, I saw in y- one of your Twitter conversations was, I haven't read the interview with Shaman 
where he said he says that when Rafi calls that captain, he was calling her ex girlfriend. Yeah, mm. which like I totally said <laughs> when I saw that, and it's I definitely like reference it, but I make every relationship right romantic yes. in my right. photo caps and in my head, so it's sort of like. Whoa, I feel validated, but it's like, wait, you're a conspiracy theorist about romance, so <laughs> clearly I'm not I'm not the general audience for this. You're not the general audience. And like neither am I, but I, I think every single woman who's ever shown up at Star Trek would totally hook up with a woman. And man too, because it's the future and why would they care? But like I I mean, I saw that scene and I did not think that they were exes. I was just like and and I look for it everywhere. And if I didn't mm. think that, then then I can guarantee some heterosexual watcher who never has to think whether they're heterosexual or not, if they think they're heterosexual, whatever. But I I mean, people who aren't looking for representation would absolutely the default is straight. And I think right. you know right. one of, some of his responses to because. Once I found out he was doing those Instagram stories where he answers questions, I sort of clicked through some of those. And one person asked if he was going to make Rafi and Seven's relationship explicit. And he was like, what do you mean by explicit? Dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, it just means textual, buddy. It doesn't mean yeah, they're having yeah. sex in the middle gross. of the bridge. And like, so gross. And no, it is gross. And that's the thing is like queer affection is constantly sexualized right. because it, we saw... We saw um, Gerardi and Rios kissing, and then it pans down to two women holding hands. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, (laughs) you know, I think those two things are not, that's not an equal, and the word he used in his interview that I shared on Twitter was organic. That's not, Mm. those are not organically similar. And just because Rios and uh, Gerardi have slept together already, I mean, he's still in the middle of his bridge, and I get he's not like a by the books (laughs) military captain but like you know for that to happen and then literally the scene melts into two women holding hands is like (laughs) okay so and even though i have watched that scene it's a five second scene i've timed it maybe six seconds i've watched it probably like 15 times maybe 400 times who's keeping count but like and it means a lot to me in a sort of retroactive way and also like a screw you Rick Berman way, which we can talk about if you want to. But like, yeah, huge mood. (laughs) Nonetheless, compared to the way heterosexual and like abusive heterosexual relationships, the Max and Gerardi relationship, the Kylo, Romulan, and uh, Dodge, not Dodge, Soji relationship. Yeah, the, the two Romulan siblings relationships, like compared to the way those have been portrayed, I think like, no, this was not enough. It is not clear or textual or good representation. However, again, still love it. Still happy about it. <laughs> it brings a smile to my face every time. It's really, it's, I, I, it's a very kind of like a fandom conflict. In yeah. I, this is shamelessly, shamelessly stealing from my friend Tansy's review of the Orville, but it feels like it was, would have been terribly, intensely progressive for 2003. And and that's what I mean, like, my 16-year-old self. or yeah. self, Like, you know, it, it, yeah. I think about how I felt watching Someone to Watch Over Me, right? That episode mm. of Voyager where the doctor is teaching 
Seven how to be a straight woman. Yeah. Um, Specifically because he loves her, but just in general, because for some reason, and I think I've I've probably talked about that on here. Who knows? I talk about it all the time. But, um, (laughs) and I think, like, had that episode had one scene of her in the holodeck holding a woman's hand, which is exactly what she did this time, it would have felt groundbreaking. Places wouldn't have aired it. There would have been, like, an up, like, but... That was 20 years ago. Yeah. Right. And now do you want the real kicker? Love it. This was an ad lib. It wasn't in the script. Jerry Ryan and Michelle Hurd did it. Well then, I mean, that makes me- A plus plus to Jerry Ryan and Michelle Hurd. Yeah, 100%. I love them twice as much as I loved them before, which was a lot. So like- Yeah, yeah. But also, arg. And it's kind of- you know, we have Riker Troy as a relationship which only survived because it was pushed by the actors at every instance. Mm, yeah. But here, there's nothing in the script at all. It's literally two women doing the work. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Well, that no. It doesn't surprise Ryan. me at all. But it makes me feel, again, it makes me feel better about me and the way I read things because when Rafi and Seven had their like two line exchange by yeah, the window yeah. in the oh, yeah. first seven episode. I was like, "Oh, I ship that." Oh, same. Like, Me too. I'm they, pretty they sure I messaged you. They definitely have something going on here, just because of the way they were like leaning into each other. And so it was like the actors were trying. Yeah. And, and I it, feel that if that the fact that they they at least got it all the way to the end. And now everybody's talking about it. There's, like, headlines about this. So they have to follow through in season two. Like, something has to happen. Yeah, yeah. This can't go away. It's kind of amazing. Uh, Can I just point out that I started shipping them before the series aired because Jerry Ryan and Michelle (laughs) Hurd more or less wore the same outfit to a premiere. Or possibly one... One was to a UK premiere and one was to a US, but they both wore suits, one black, one white. It was pretty amazing. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yes. yeah. Some yes. of us some of us grew up with Voyager and uh, Program to remember white suits. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Ooh, yeah. I mean, mm. I will give you credit. I'm clapping my hands. I don't want to mess up the recording, but I am clapping. <laughs> Thank you. I plan to <laughs> yep. milk this for all it's worth. Uh, please do. I mean... I have always shipped Seven with any and all women she's ever met. So (laughs) as soon as she came on board, I was like, hmm, well, no, Agnes, no. Let's Raffi. I I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I was kind of into the idea of Raffi and Seven. Uh, Not Raffi. Sorry, Raffi and Agnes. Same. Me too. I still believe that Agnes took one look at at Raffi and fell in love and was like, how do you have a relationship with someone who's not abusing you? That's really weird. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Agnes. Oh, Agnes. She tried. Um, yeah. So do you want to talk about Rick Berman real quick? <laughs> Fuck that yes. guy. Yeah. Oh, man. I a really bad day. I hope a hundred thousand people emailed him headlines about this happening and everyone <laughs> reacting pretty well to it because I hate him. Like, I mean, I don't know him, and I don't really hate him. I wouldn't, you know, bombard him on Twitter or stand outside his house. But what he did to Star Trek at a time when Star Trek should have been progressing past pop culture, I think held Star Trek back so much. For years. For years. And it made... maybe. (laughs) So that when other... So that now they can do a hand-holding. And for Star Trek, or like, you know, 
Disco's progressive in 2018 for having a gay, a gay couple of, like, cis yeah. gay men, one of whom is white. And, like, can that's I, because of Berman. Can I say that I watch a lot of television, as everyone knows, mm. and I watch a lot of procedurals, like medical dramas and crime procedurals and Dick Wolf shows. Like, there cannot be anything more white bread, old school TV than dick wolf okay but on every single one of them there are gay couples there are trans characters there are non-binary characters there are like the diversity has exploded across the procedural television in an amazing way and it's like Star Trek is almost behind the curve now, still. They are they behind only the curve. Have, yeah. They only have, like someone on, on Twitter again was saying something like, you know, we, it's, it's not explicit if it's, if it's just, just hand holding. And someone was like, well, it's more in, in Discovery. In Discovery, they have this whole relationship. And it was like, yeah, that's one relationship. One. Yeah, yeah, and, and those wit- and ladies who dance in the background. He wasn't even a main ca- cast character until the second season, and then they were broken up, and it was like, like you can't, you can't hang your hat on comets. Right. I mean, no. if you think about it, the last time a Star Trek sh- show aired before Discovery was the early two thousands, right? And mm-hmm. the way we talk about gender has changed so much just since then. That the idea that we that everybody would still be split down binary gender lines one hundred percent like fifty it's like it's fifty fifty there's only men and there's only women in three hundred years is ridiculous right and right. it's really cool that Discovery has added a non binary actor to its its cast as a major recurring character if not a regular but they're right. playing a trill and right. that's that's fantastic and it makes a lot of sense for the trill but at the same time. You know, right. we have non-binary humans right now. I right now. Ring a bunch up and they'll yell at me for waking them up on a Saturday morning. But still. <laughs> I could ring a bunch up here and it's the evening, so they'd be fine. <laughs> but, cool. I mean, that's that's what I mean. It's like, it's the people who are making the show are stuck in old right. ways. And mm. they're making a show about the future. It also feels, it, the fact that the non-binary binary trill is on Discovery... Yeah, with Culber and Stamets feels yep. very much like we're gonna shove all our diversity over there. Yeah, and we're gonna be you know winky winky <laughs> over here on Picard because this is so our. So I will say, and I mean I know this sort of goes to the men, how Shimon Chabon Chabon I don't know writes men versus women. I I thought Picard and Data telling each other they loved each other was something, like, men saying I love you to each other, I, I, I think know. that was really huge. Yeah, I And not a dash of no that... homo or I love you as a yeah. father. No, it was very much I love you. You're, yeah. I dream of you every night. I mean, that was yeah. to me, I, again, I think, was it textual enough to be canon queerness? I don't know. I, I said very early on I think that's how Patrick Stewart is playing it is that he's very much in love with Data, whether that's platonic or romantic in loveness, but it's in loveness. It's mm. regret your death, dream about you every night. And and that whole thing, particularly the last, when Picard was in the simulation, felt very queer to me. 
But then that just, again, made the handholds just so much, like... Yeah. <sighs> and again, we had the platonic declaration of love between Ralphie and Picard last week. That's right. great. Like, I really enjoy how Chabon writes platonic relationships. It's just that he doesn't stick to that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the main... Right. The, I... Yes, I... I'm sort of <laughs> tripping over my words because... it's just this crazy I feel like so conflicted like I guess now I feel a little less conflicted knowing it wasn't even the script it's like Mm. thank you Jerry Ryan you gave me something I've been like (laughs) literally you know Picard dreams of data I dream of a queer seven of nine and a half since I was a teenager and so thank you Jerry Ryan for that but on the other hand screw all of you show people who were like yeah this is fine like it's just I mean honestly (laughs) I will believe that in in her mind as she was doing it, Jerry Ryan was thinking, fuck Rick Berman too. absolutely. (laughs) I would like to think that as well. So. I mean, some of the interviews she gave back in the day definitely make me think that was the case. Right. She is extremely professional and extremely appropriate. And yet there's always that mild subtext of Mm -hmm. shade. I like to think that she and Terry Farrell and Jolene Blaylock have a WhatsApp group. And it's oh my God. <laughs> nothing but fuck you, Rick Berman memes. Dreams. I, yeah. I mean, that would be so great. I w- <laughs> wow. Yes. We could talk about Seven for like three hours, but yeah. we should probably get to talking about other stuff. So maybe we should okay. say any any final thoughts on, on this topic? No, I mean, again, it's just sort of like, I'm I'm so happy and also I'm so frustrated, but I'm so excited <laughs> for season two. That's my position yeah, as well. I, I and that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like this finale did not change a single thing about my feelings for the series. I think it's a hot mess in terms of writing, but I love these characters. Yes, I feel the exact same way. Like, I was very much, up until the last five minutes of the finale, I was like, I don't know if I like this show. And then they, like, from Data's death scene to the credits, I was like, this is the greatest Star Trek show I've ever seen. (laughs) Right, when Picard wakes up in that simulation... I forgot how annoyed I was at how the plot was resolving. And exactly. I, did not, I didn't think about it again until I switched the TV off and walked away. Same. And, I'm exactly the same boat. And I think that's a testament to the quality of Chabon's writing when he's writing to his strengths, which is quiet interpersonal moments and platonic relationships. Yes, I agree. So I guess to sum it all up, Seven of Nine is queer. I am so excited about it. I will like ride this high all the way through the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) You'll just carry a sign that's visible from a great distance that says seven of nine is queer. P.S. Please send toilet paper. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. (laughs) All right. right. Excellent. Uh, Sam, where can we find you online? Uh, You can find me online at retconning on Twitter. That's R-E-T-C-O-N-N-I-N-G. That's the best place to find me where I share lots of opinions, both frustrated and excited. <laughs> and hey. we will no doubt have you back again. Oh, thank you. I love I loved chatting with you guys about Star Trek. Awesome. Hooray. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. I really like Sam, and I'm really glad you introduced me to her. Yeah, she's great. She's one of my oldest friends at this point, and hey, we have had so many conversations about how television should be more queer (laughs) and I'm glad that we're still having that conversation I just wish 
that we're at a point in 2020 where television is so queer that we don't need to have these conversations and we can like right, that is just... move on to the next thing. I don't know what the next yeah. thing is, maybe disability rep, but yeah. <laughs> I also have a problem with the, with the idea that there's a queue, but you know. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. We live in this world. It's like yeah. when I rail against capitalism and there people are like, but you go to Disney World and it's like, yeah, I live here. Yeah. I have to deal with capitalism, so at least I'm going to have fun. <laughs> but anyway, that's another rant. I have to admit that I got spoiled for the Gollum thing before I watched the episode, and it made me really angry. It really <laughs> squicked me out and felt like a betrayal of Picard and the themes and the ideas of the show. And I was even getting angry on Gene Roddenberry's behalf. And then I watched it. And I really enjoyed it. I was not spoiled for it, but I felt like it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Like, I felt like it was a foregone conclusion last week, but this week it was, as soon as Agnes was creeping around, I was like, I know where this is going. (laughs) So, so, so it didn't feel, I don't know. I guess, um, I have a very long standing positive feeling for artificial intelligence with souls like Mm. with your soul being put into AI like that's good (laughs) in my book I guess um see to me it often it often squicks me out a bit like I'm sure I could come up with some reason that it's problematic and bad but mostly it just squicks me that's fair and I was saying I don't know all of the uh I don't know the Judaic story and I don't I don't know I just I like this is silly but one of my favorite animes is called Cat Girl Nuku Nuku Mm -hmm. which is about a scientist who made a robot body for his dying daughter and it was taken from him. She died. There was like so sort of a you know Thad Troy Roker thing going on, mm. and then so he stole the robot body and his son because he was trying to save his son, who, and on their escape, they ran over a cat, and so they put the cat's soul into the robot body. So it's a cat girl. Yeah, a robot so cat it's girl. Literally, literally a cat soul in a robot body and so it was like you can imagine Mm. what that show was and that's like one of my favorite things and it's like one of my foundational things like one of the first (laughs) things I remember and so it's stuff like this I've always had this makes me extra sad that Elnor didn't steal spot two or even meet him I'm really upset about Elnor's lack of a cat. Like, I'm going to be complaining about that for months. Um, I once did a brief writing workshop with the author C.S. Pacat of who wrote the Captive Prince series. And she said that one way to drive narrative tension is to make promises to the reader. Like, Elnor will see a cat. The Borg will attack and the cube will become active and all those blinky badges will Mm -hmm. turn red and everyone has to run and i feel like this season set up a lot of promises that it didn't fulfill narratively Mm. and i hope that doesn't sound entitled i just think that threads were dangled and then not picked up 
in weird ways. Yeah. The, the cat thing is so simple. Right. To, like, there, he talked about the original spot, they introduced spot two, and then somehow that didn't pay off. It's like, why did it this happen? It could have been as simple as spot two walks up and nuzzles him while he cries in Rafi's lap. Yeah. Yeah, so, so many ways that Spot 2 could have ended up mm. with Elnor, and it just didn't, and it's just weird. Um, and the Borg thing, I am just really, like, I, the, the coming to life, it's weird that that never happened, but after the crash, nothing, nothing happens yeah. with the Borg, and so I'm just sort of like... Why did we introduce the Borg if you're doing nothing with them? They didn't even get to do anything in the ex- in the Seven as Queen. Yeah, yeah, episode, they just died. Nerissa killed them all before they got to do anything cool. So it's like, what is going on with the... Why were the Borg a part of this? If they're not going to be used to save Picard, if they're not going to be used to help Elnor and Seven save the day in some way, if they're not going to... Like, it's really weird. But And I should have let Sam introduce this before she left, but she came up with what should happen with Nerissa. Yes. So I am team Nerissa's not dead because all she did was fall down a shaft. And if Star Wars taught me anything, (laughs) it's that people who fall down shafts don't die. So, therefore, she's totally still alive. And Sam suggested that she could be assimilated by Borg down in the shaft and then, like, could have a whole I am what I I am what I hate. Yeah, yeah. Which would be amazing. (laughs) So that's what should happen. She can revive Sutra and they can take that cube and become the pirate queens of the galaxy like you wanted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. There are other plot threads that are bigger than Spot 2 left dangling. Like, they... <laughs> Narek? Forgot Narek? Narek. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> kind yeah, of a big deal? He's in the credits. He's literally a main cast character in this season. And yet, his storyline has... He's been very much, like a plot point for Soji, a plot point for Nerissa, a plot point for the plot. And then this episode, he was finally sort of like, we finally were introduced to the idea that he had a different relationship to his backstory with his sister than she Mm. did. And we didn't get any flashbacks from him. We don't know anything that happened to him but he was finally sort of starting to be on his own path that was separate from Nerissa and separate from Soji and then it was like nope just kidding you're going to scream for Soji she's going to ignore you and then you're going to disappear literally disappear from the entire show right I just I so want to go back and edit the scripts like just just Go over them with a red pen and demand revisions before they're filmed. Like, Chabon said in Instagram that his intention was to show Narek being handed over to Federation justice. That's fine. That's great. Putting a Romulan in a Federation jail and having him go, why are they treating me well? is kind of great. Maybe he can hang out in New Zealand with Agnes. 
But then we also don't know, except from his Instagram, that Agnes intends to hand herself over. Was this on his Instagram story? Because once again, once again, not tell your story through Instagram. No. I patently refuse to look it up. <laughs> right, like when he says, oh yeah, Shaban and Laris will have a bigger role in season two. That's great. I definitely want to hear that. When he says uh, Narek was a victim of the editorial process and this is what we intended. What the fuck, man? What the fuck? <laughs> I don't care what you intended. It's not on screen. He is tackled by robots and then disappears. So right. anything could happen. And I could I can come up with, because I'm me, I can come up with eight different ways that Narek <laughs> can get out of that situation and have an awesome presence in season two. And like, I only hope that that's what happens. But he's not forgotten in season two. Yeah, that he just is never seen again. Like, that's my deepest fear. <laughs> At the very least, we need to see him brief, like, not necessarily as a big thing, but we need to see him briefly in season two because his plot is unfinished and that means a piece of Soji's plot is unfinished and she is the female lead. Right. But she was barely treated that way. No! Like, she had... It was very important that Soji, quote-unquote, make the right choice, but... It was a lot more about plot than it was about Soji. Yeah, and I think that if we had seen more last week of Sutra persuading Soji to her way of thinking, and if Soji had spent time with Saga and was really affected by her death, that would mean something. But, you know, Soji comes home, sees her people briefly, and then she's like, okay, I'm wandering again. And, like, maybe she doesn't really like her relatives. I don't like her relatives. So, you know. I mean, can, can we talk about how Sutra is a complete non-entity? <laughs> She's, she does nothing. She no. Does nothing. She had so much build-up. She was built up as the final antagonist, you know, mm. like in a video game where you yeah. get to the last boss. And, and then she just was deleted. <laughs> just, like, deactivated. And, and that was it. By stupid song like i cheered when picard said that he did not care for sung because i was like finally he like that was such his character was also like what is the point of this character but of course of course stupid biological data couldn't actually be a bad guy in any way like i just ew It's like the thing with TNG where Dr. Sung basically did terrible things. Like his wife, you know, his wife died. So he replaced her with an android. Uh, And like, it's cool that you can do that, but maybe don't do that. And and also he built at least one murder bot. And yet the show generally treats him like this great man who gave us data. And I, I, I just think that I have a different attitude to great men than Star Trek? Mm-hmm. I, I just, like, that Sung and Sutra are both ridiculous to me, and I feel like the, they could have been deleted from the plot and everything would have been fine. We didn't, we didn't need either of them. 
They, yeah. You could have used that time to build up other characters that you already had. Right, right. Like, what if Soji was the one who decided that she had to build this and there wasn't ever an evil Soji? It was just a decision, you know, her, I, I come home and I learn the truth and I make this decision because I think it's what's best for the, for my people or the most people or the universe as a mm. whole or whatever. And it's all about her internal struggle. Like, that would be a better story than you have a crazy evil twin and then you don't. You're right. Soji doesn't feel like the lead character or the lead, uh, the, the next major character in the, the ensemble. She Mm-mm. just, she does things, but we don't really get a sense They're of not why. About her. Yeah, They're not yeah. About... They're more about Picard. Right. It's like when every Klingon episode was about Picard and not Worf. Yes. Throughout all of The Next Generation. <laughs> yeah. Or every Wesley episode was about Picard and not Beverly. <laughs> it's like, it's always all about Picard. And I understand that in this series, he's literally the title character. But you can't, you can't introduce an ensemble and have it always be about him. Exactly, exactly. And this is a really strong ensemble and they're interesting characters. And obviously it's the finale and that that means certain certain things have to come full circle and Picard's story is one of them. I just Yeah. Yeah. And yet well, Picard's story is the only one they got any closure. Right. Like even Rafi is drinking again in the final scene. Well, I guess the crisis is over, so she reverts to... I don't know. Rafi is another person who did nothing in this episode. And I love Rafi. And I want her to be, like, the star. So mm. I don't mean any of this is against Rafi or Michelle Hurd. Because what she... The, the character beats that she had, the seven five-second scene that we've already discussed, and the absolutely amazing scene with Eleanor that I just love. Mm. And her great scene with Rios where they're just... Exactly. And her great scene with Rios. Like, all of their... uh, Everything that Rafi did was amazing, but none of it was about anything. It was all just sort of incidental or character building. And, like, I'm into that. I'm okay with nothing happening and it just being about character, but in this particular instance, this... There was supposed to be a lot of stuff happening in this episode, Mm. and it seems like 10% of it actually happened. It was mostly about data. Yeah. That's weird. That's weird to me. That's why I came out going, this is a 10-episode fix-it fic for Star Trek Nemesis. And I respect that. You know I've gone to pretty extreme lengths to bring my favorite character back from the dead. But, you know... I'm so happy for all of the people. I'm happy for you and Sam, who 10 minutes ago said how beautiful and amazing that scene between Picard and Data was for you and how it made the whole season worthwhile. Oh, I, I meant it made the whole episode worthwhile until, I... I, until it was over and I stopped thinking about it and started thinking about everything else. I honestly, my mind wandered and <laughs> I stopped paying attention during the Data and Picard scene. Mm. That was not a scene for me, which is fine. I don't need anything. Like, 
Seven and Narissa flirting and then murdering each other was totally a scene for me, and that's all I need. See, I kind of hated that because it was like, once again, Narissa is the evil lesbian. And, like, just give the poor woman a break. Well, I don't consider her evil. I just think she's misunderstood. I know, but I don't know that that was the intent. I know you don't care about authorial (laughs) intent. You don't at all. No. Can I just say how pissed off I am that in the big campfire scene where Narek shares his amazing pre-Vulcan mythology, which I loved, that suddenly Rafi doesn't know anything about Romulan culture? The woman hired by Picard as his first officer because she's an expert on Romulans? Well, I mean, this is another thing where it's like they forget what their characters know and don't know. There are things that Rafi knows that she shouldn't know, and then there are things that Rafi should be all over that all of a sudden she has no idea of. Right, like she should be as capable of translating as Elnor, and I just felt like a lot of her dialogue should have gone to Rios. It's like they needed, they didn't want it all to go to Rios for, like Rios got to have his, I know absolutely nothing that you're talking about, lines, and so... He would be talking too much, I guess, if if her lines also went to Rios. Yeah, um, but, but I they just... could even like I feel like they could even have gone to Elnor. Some of like they could have split up, or she, or she could have just had more. Like she, there was one one thing that she knew. Like uh, yeah, yeah. But then like Rios said, yeah, we heard that too, and he was like, oh, and he went on off his amazing monologue, and like that was like. And that's what I'm saying was like Narek was finally being actually was like, look, Narek is getting some character growth here. It's happening. And then none of that mattered. Mm, yeah. Because it was more of like a joke for Rios than it was about Narek. So that's why I just it's weird. There's just weird. I don't know if it's pacing or just character beats that are it's like the scenes are written wrong I, I agree i think this is your you want to take a, a red pen it's like yeah they didn't yeah do that enough they didn't they didn't have the final once over yes to realize that oh wait guys rafi is good at this or this is something that eleanor would know or this is something or like hey what happened to eric yeah <laughs> and so I believe everyone that the Data and Picard scene was well written and beautiful and moving and poignant. I wouldn't go so far as to say well written because Data uses the term, oh, something like amazingly complex quantum simulation like three times. And I was like, you can cut two of those repetitions. But I honestly don't know anything that happened. Like I actually had to rewind and Mm. try to watch it again. And then I still didn't catch it the second time. So, like, my brain just shut off. I was like, I don't know why. Yeah. Just, just, I was like, this, I don't care. And, and I, and it's kind of upsetting for me personally, because I think that was what the whole point of the show was. And so it's bad that I don't care. Yeah. The whole point of the show. That's a problem. It's not a problem with the show. It's a problem with me. Like, (laughs) so... So that's what I'm grappling with. I'm grappling with why is it that I care more about Narek and Nerissa than Data and Picard? You know, you are not obliged to care about every single character to the same degree. And you are always going to like complicated spy siblings more than 
old men. And I think that's completely scene, fine. Like, okay, so I'll grant you that the Neric, uh, that the Nerissa and Seven Seed had negatives as well as positives, but the first scene with Neric and Nerissa when he runs on to the board yes. and she's there, I like almost started crying because they were so it's like they're so close and and he was still hers he wasn't betraying her i was so i had geared myself up for he was going to betray her and yeah, that didn't yeah. happen and i was so happy like i just am thrilled yes they, those are the moments that so that was very very meaningful for me and i was completely emotionally connected in elnor crying into rafi when Picard was dying and he said, Elnor, in that like really happy yeah. voice and touched his cheek. I like, that was beautiful. That was amazing. That one second that I was like, this is why Elnor is in this series because he's not like, he doesn't, he's another one who doesn't actually do anything to progress no. ever. No. But he has emotional beats with a lot of different characters and audience like he pulls the audience along with him in those yeah. emotional beats and i think that's what he's there for and that's kind of amazing yes i agree and i wish that he as a character evolved more and i really hated him in that scene where he asks seven why the xps don't just kill themselves because wow <laughs> elnor wow but, but you have to remember that he's a child Yes, and he has been raised in a culture without tact. And also, I think even right. the countercultural Romulans like the Kawat Malat probably have some hang-ups about AI and cybernetics that they maybe mm -hmm. haven't examined. And so, like, as a, as a so source of complexity yep. in Elnor and in Romulans, even the so-called good Romulans, oh. and I say so-called because I don't think the average Romulan is necessarily bad, but... I like it. I just think it was horribly, horribly insensitive, and he should have known better. He hurt Seven's but feelings. To 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 circle back to the fireside chat. Mm. If this whole crazy AI thing was something that happened before, like to their Vulcan ancestors, before they came to Vulcan, even that which is, is a. I really like that is ingrained in mm. the culture and I absolutely believe that there are Vulcan versions of the Jat Vash now. It's like I'm sorry, now that's canon. <laughs> like it explains stuff like these nonsensical uh logic extremists and all like there's there's definitely we already knew there were evil Vulcans and so it's like Vulcans against AI, I can absolutely mm. believe. I don't think that Narek was necessarily being literal or accurate when he said it, the, the story was history, <laughs> but I think no, obviously but... there is something in their culture that maps to, to modern, right. modern AI, and I say modern in the sense of late 24th century, and that's really cool, and yes. I am into the idea that Vulcans didn't, uh, didn't evolve on Vulcan, or maybe that's a very radical idea that they don't really talk about, and... Uh, Chabon said on Instagram, and this is something that we didn't need to know for the plot, that O's parents were unificationists, or at least that's what her mother, her Romulan mother, would say. So, Aww. I know. That's sweet. I'm glad that O, like, she's sort of, she's been outed now as yeah. the 
full on Romulan. <laughs> Not so much on the good side of Starfleet. But she she just sort of left, you know. Yeah. She, didn't, she was defeated but not destroyed and I appreciate that because I think that there is more to her story well we barely know anything about her she didn't really have any character development or anything no. we just like her because she's a cool older lady and a Vulcan Romulan like I mean look that is enough for me I, I don't <laughs> really need a lot to love a character but if she reappears in season two maybe as a political adversary rather than a person leading a fleet like that would be cool i want to know more about the politics of the romulan free state and what their relationship with the federation looks like now that a a federation citizen has stolen their borg cube and b they maybe (laughs) tried to destroy a federation planet maybe (laughs) i i just think that there's a lot more drama to uh to be gotten out of all of these Romulan shenanigans. Yeah. And they shouldn't just be... Wrapped up with a bow. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think even if the synth story is basically resolved and the synths can travel and apparently the synth ban has been lifted in five minutes, I have to assume that there's like a few weeks pass between the departure of the Romulan fleet and Picard's revival and then they're leaving like maybe a I couple mean, of I months hope so I hope so because I have a lot of questions this reminds me of when uh this when Saru's planet was completely <laughs> upended and then, and then they left yeah it's like come on what happens what happens to everyone here there's for there's all these synths that I guess Sung is still in charge, I guess. I don't know, but that's a thing that's happening. And they obviously, like, they were instigating first contact procedures, so Mm. good. That means there's some kind of negotiations and stuff going on. I I can believe that happens, and it's not, it has nothing to do with our crew. And that's, like, I can believe that. Yeah, yeah. But over on the XB's side, what, what? What is going on over there? Seven just left? <laughs> yeah. Chabon like, is like, he intended for the XBs to sort of join with the synths and find a new what? life with them. And I really like that. That's what we wanted for Ramda. But maybe some of them want to go back? Are there still Federation citizens on that cube? If, this, if, if these are things that Chabon had actually thought about before going on Instagram. Right. Which I am not convinced of, but... If that is true, if these are things, if these were his intent, quote unquote, mm. a nice little montage, right? You know, yeah, would take a minute tops, and yeah. would, like we could show the synths meeting the XBs. Like that's literally all you would have to do is like, here's some synths on this side, here's some XBs on there, mm. and they mm. shake hands. The end yeah. of, of yeah. you know, like you know. Leading Narek into a Starfleet brig, then we, we know what happened to Narek. Like, yeah, it's yeah. the thing that happened. They're like Elnor picks up Spot and pats him. Yeah, like the, Why did this not happen? I don't know. And I, <laughs> yeah, like 
it does leave room for headcanon, and I enjoy that. So my headcanon is that Seven called in Starfleet and Janeway brought out a ship and XBs who wanted to go back to the Federation went back to the Federation and the ones who didn't met the synths and stayed and that Borg Cube is being salvaged and Janeway gives Seven a reassuring hug. And, and Troy and Castro uh, would show back up in yeah, the montage yeah. and wel- you know welcoming Will home. Like... Yeah. There's just these little things, little tiny things. It's not that hard. Mm. Mm. I was like sad that so the in the credits, Brent Spiner, Jerry Ryan, and Jonathan Franks all showed up in the credits. But when Jonathan showed up in the credits last time, Marina Sirtis did not. Yes. And so I was like really holding out hope <laughs> that Marina Sirtis oh. was going to be in this episode. I was sad. I was holding out hope that it would be Worf and the Enterprise leading the rescue armada, and so I feel kind of cheated, and I feel like that was Riker at his most tediously blustersome. I agree. It was definitely, it was not necessary for that to be Riker. Like, I get why it was. Right, but it could have been Geordie. Exactly. It It could have been any other Enterprise person, Mm. any other TNG person, and that would have, like soothed so many bombs of people who are upset that Riker's the only person who gets to be in it, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Literally, like, Jordy, Worf, Crusher, Wesley, like, literally anyone <laughs> could have shown up <laughs> and, you know, done that three-line cameo. Yeah, yeah. And it would have been more powerful. Someone I saw describes it as like when you've eaten too much chocolate cake and it's not that it's bad, it's just too much chocolate cake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I need a little strawberry on the side as well. Exactly. Apparently in my heart, Geordie is a strawberry. Or, you know, some, some whipped cream. Like, yeah. You know, yeah. caramel drizzle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't I, know which each of these are, but, but I'm just saying. Wolf is definitely a caramel drizzle. Yeah, right? That's I when I said it I pictured him. Mm. I feel like TNG characters as dessert is something we should we should consider. Should uh, definitely. definitely. It reminded me of the end of season 1 of Discovery where time passes but we don't really have a sense of how much and so there's this big gap where things happen and Michael is reinstated and (laughs) the synth ban is lifted and we have to assume that there's a lot of politics going on in the background but we don't get to see it and that's a real shame because one the sense of time passing is so muddy and two I love that space politics nonsense and the synth ban is like that being lifted like this you know, yeah. the snap of the fingers is so upsetting to me. Mainly on behalf of Thad Troy Riker. Yeah, family. yeah. Like, dude, <laughs> if you can't... Yes. It's, 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 it's... Picard is a synth now, so you have to lift it? That's what I got out of it. Basically. <laughs> and I kind of happens. wish that season two had opened with Picard you know, going through the process of lobbying and working to have the synth ban lifted. And then, you know, episode one ends, the ban is lifted, the plot can move, whatever the plot is, can move forward because, woo, the synths are free. Right, because it, it takes time. I mean, look, yeah, we're in the middle of this pandemic, right? Right, I've it's noticed. Like, 
the the worst thing to happen to our society in many many years everything is crazy and congress it still takes weeks for them to do anything right like it's not the snap of the fingers it's not someone decides oh just kidding we're gonna change that like it is a bunch of people arguing for a long time about things that don't directly affect them right and so they don't care because they're not thaddeus troy Riker or deanna or will or kestra they're a bunch of people who've never had synth problems mm. in their lives and so they wouldn't have done it like that's not how bureaucracy works and i understand that star trek is supposed to be yeah but it's if they wouldn't have put that synth ban in place in the first place if if star trek was this perfect utopia where bureaucracy doesn't exist Right. It's hugely bureaucratic. We know that. And so to have, I I guess part of the problem is that you and I would find the politics really interesting. And this is our Star Trek West Wing concept again. But why couldn't season two open like the first X-Men movie with Soji delivering an address to the Federation Council arguing for a lifting of the synth ban? 100%. You know? And it, they could still go on their merry ways, it's not like, I mean, I guarantee that Rios has some arrest warrants out for him. <laughs> we know for a fact the Seven of Nine has, is like wanted in multiple quadrants. So, like, they're already criminals. They could have two sins on the run too, and that could be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Or Picard under house arrest at, at La Bar and going quietly stir-crazy because he has all this new energy and Laris and Shabana are in the weird position of being the ones with more freedom of movement. Like, this story is interesting. Stories. There's a lot of stories that can be told. Hmm. It, it just it reminds, it smacks of, as you said, the end of uh, Discovery hmm. Season 1 where, ha, 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 everything's better. Yeah. We fixed yeah. it all. Good job, yeah. guys. It's it's a it's a we are Starfleet shorthand and Starfleet ain't like that. No, no, and I just think, especially in this time where uh, building political movement is really important in people's day to day life, I think that is a story that deserves better than a hand wave. Right. Exactly. We've said that people, you know, people being considered illegal or people being considered less than Mm. by the society is something that is relevant to reality. Yeah, and And you can't just undo that overnight. Like, obviously, I I, I assume that there will still be social implications for Soji and Picard. Not that, like, they're both pretty stealthy in their synthness, but the political implications can't be waved away instantly either right it's just i'm mm. just saying yeah to yeah. cat i like to point out it's when something is like that's a little bit too fantastical for me much like the magical starship repair device <laughs> the magical star like that whatever that was just that was like we need something I, it was cute the, the final use of the Picard maneuver, that was mm. cute. It was cute. It was it just, ridiculous. It was absurd. It was cute. 
It annoyed me because that's not really how the synths seem to work, but my headcanon is that Wesley popped by this planet and this is just the sort of science is magic and your will is manifest bullshit that he was leaving to study in, in Next Generation. It's, it's true that so he built it. we learned about the synths makes that mm. make sense. It was very... You know the the people that uh, the the Voyager people that the Borg assimilated a few episodes back, mm. uh, they had that technology. Yeah, like, that was that was those crazy people. So if yeah. it had come from the Borg cube, it right. would have made sense. Right, like Seven hands them a thing. Hey, just inject some nanoprobes and go. We promise. Yeah. I promise your ship won't turn into a Borg cube. Yeah, I've seen Tuvok use it. Yeah, like. Yeah. This is a thing that is real. Mm. Yeah, so that was a bit weird. But I honestly realise that I really hate how Sung has treated the synths and Maddox and Data. Like, he keeps Data trapped in this static existence long after he died. And the synths are basically children. And, like, he, you are a parent... So you can tune out as I share my grand philosophy of parenting. But I feel okay. like part of it has to involve, like, teaching your child to be a moral person and a citizen of the world that they live in. Like, and I feel like Sung and Maddox failed to do that. And so you have these sits who are, like, 13 years old at the max. Who yeah, right? Are much seem much much younger in their moral understanding. So, like, of course, Sutra goes straight to murder because she's a scared little girl. I mean, this is a, this is another. It's very Star Trek to be like, mm. here's our perfect society of a bunch of people who are basically children because mm. that, it's like Eden. Here's Eden, yeah. and then the Star Trek people coming in and say, mm. you need knowledge. Yeah, like, we're gonna solve that problem for you. It's but weird. they're sexy it's like... children. <laughs> oh God, I don't want to talk about my parenting because I don't even know. <laughs> I, I, I assume that once you actually have very, a child, it's like it's very keep, daily. Keep them alive <laughs> and fed, and hope for the best. Exactly. It's very yeah. daily, and right now it's crazy. <laughs> but I'm sure you're doing great. But in the Last Jedi. <laughs> When Yoda, a character that I <laughs> hate outside of The Last Jedi, I was mm. say, I really can't stand Yoda, but in The Last Jedi, I like him because he's finally learned. Now that he's been dead mm. for 40 years, he's, he's learned a few things about life and people and mm. teaching people specifically, which was like his job for 800 years, but whatever. Mm. So... Mm. And he says to Luke, we are what they grow beyond. Yeah. And that's what Sung and Maddox and other Sung should be. They should right. be what they grow beyond. But instead, they are all trying to keep them from growing. Right. It's like a Montessori school without any of the school bit. It's just like they play and they build things, but... They don't learn any of the... They don't... They haven't been taught the responsibilities that come with being a person. Right. And that's not their fault. That's, no, that's their parents' fault. No, it's not their fault. fault. And it's like, look, Sung clearly never learned to begin no. for himself. 
So, no. like, I get it. I get why Sung is incapable of teaching people how to be human because he was not. A, he didn't have that experience. No. And I think part of my problem with the way Maddox is written in this show is that Ugh. in any other Star Trek, he would be the villain. In yeah, fact, I... you know, in Measure of a Man, he was the villain. Right. I don't understand Maddox in this at all. I think that it makes sense that they used Maddox because he was the person that we knew who was trying mm. to duplicate this work. Right. But it's really weird the way they characterized him. I don't... I don't get him at all, and I just hate... I hated every single time Sung called Agnes their mother. Well, obviously she did too, which was kind of a relief. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, right, it was... was it was great for Agnes. I have to, like, we haven't talked about Agnes at all. Agnes was great in this episode. She was, Agnes... and I'm so impressed by how brave she was, and she is still the worst secret agent. Yeah. But the fact she... that she doesn't know that is adorable. And it's, like, she ended up on that ship with Picard, and Picard, in true Picard fashion, didn't tell her that it was a suicide mission when they started. <laughs> But she took it like a champ. It was like, okay, that's what we're doing. And she really, like, I I wrote in here that she's Picard's makeshift number one, and she totally was. Right. This entire episode, from on the planet through to the end, she was that person for him, and I kind of love it. I like, yeah. It's great that she stepped up. Like, she skipped three levels, you know, to get up to this place where she was not ready for. She wasn't ready to help make that ship go. She wasn't ready to make the plan. She wasn't ready to kill herself on behalf of ideals. And yet she did it all with a plum and and was like, okay, this is what we're doing. I guess that's what's going to happen. And she was smiling. And I was just like, Agnes, I love you. Early in the season, uh, Adam and Ben on The Greatest Discovery, their recap podcast, they don't listen to us, but I listen to them, so I feel like we're in conversation, but it's one-sided. But they talked about Agnes being a lead character and having her own call to adventure. And then the stuff with Maddox happened, and they were like, well, maybe we misread her, and they were very much on the Agnes as a villain train for a little bit. But I feel like this whole season has been one slow-motion call to adventure for Agnes, and I really love that she stepped up. Yeah. And yeah, seeing, you know, she hates being in space. She's scared of space and yet she has ops in right. a space battle. How amazing is that? It's amazing. And she's and she she does it. Picard yeah. would have failed without her. Yeah. And also, I love that this was resolved without anyone shooting and basically the only people who died in this episode were Narissa maybe. He's not probably dead. not. Probably not. <laughs> And I think that's it. And Saga yeah. last week. Right. Like for a show, a show with such a high body count and so many gratuitous violent deaths in the first half Although, of the season, it sort of ended on a Stephen Moffat everyone lives mode. Mo- also, note. if one positronic chip mm. from Data can create an entire civilization... 
why can't Saga be brought back to life? Well, I feel like she could, but she wouldn't be Saga. She would be someone new. And maybe that's how the synths will come to experience life and death, but they haven't been given the autonomy to make these choices for themselves. They're, They're children. They're teenagers. This is a planet of sexy teenagers. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Riker explicitly calls Soji a teenager. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, and... well, clearly she's in her early 20s and apparently can pass for a doctor. But... <laughs> well, it's the future. Yeah. Um, but it's... it's... It's interesting. It's interesting. And so, mm. and I don't, I'm okay with it if we leave the synths behind for a while. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm more I would... interested in the Romulans. <laughs> Same. Same. This is never the sort of Star Trek planet that really sparked my imagination. And it felt very 1970s SF. And the orchids, I love the orchids because they are like bonkers 70s sf but the shot of them (laughs) flying up through the sky to meet the the romulans looks like an ursula le guin cover it was great (laughs) i I stand by my conviction that chabon has not written read any science fiction published this century (laughs) well you know Mm. i just think that this would be a much different plot if he had read saman lecky there, there's one of those things where you say that if in order to write, read a lot. Yeah, yeah. And he has cultivated, you know, he's curated his his science fiction science fiction experience. Yeah, which everyone does, but yeah. everyone should step back once in a while and go, do I need to reconsider my curation practices? Right. Yeah. Or, or maybe, like, I don't know. He had to have had a, a writer's room. Oh, yeah. He's not the only one responsible. I just blame him for everything because he's the showrunner. Right. But I think maybe it's possible that he was given too much. This say? is this is my feeling. I think he should have been a head writer, but not the showrunner overall, because that brings with it a lot of production level responsibilities. And I honestly think he may not have had the time to give the writing as much attention as it needed. Mm, that's possible. Uh, Especially if, since if he wasn't used to the production. Yeah, exactly. If he had to learn how to be a producer at the same time. Yeah, then, yeah. You know, there's a learning curve. So. And as much as, as much as it's great to have this idea of the showrunner and the guy, you know, the guy who writes it is the guy in charge of everything, not every writer has the skills to produce television well and it is not a failing to split those roles up. In Australia, we don't really have a showrunner model. We have the writers and then we have the producers and occasionally they speak to each other. And this has its own failings. We don't make very good television. But, yeah. <laughs> we try. And, and it was, you know, for a first season of Star Trek. Oh, yeah. Um, let's yeah. go look at... The Next Generation's first season, this was way above par for yeah, compared I know, to that. I know I promoted our last episode as discussing the best episode of TNG's first season, but it really was. Like, as retrograde <laughs> yeah. as it was, you know, it's still better than Angel One or Justice, and we're not even going to talk about Code of Honor. Right, so mm. let's, uh, let's, let's be honest here. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. 
and uh, I would, you know, and you know, to be fair, most of Deep Space Nine season one is forgettable. Right, they were still trying to write episodic adventure of the week, alien of the week stories, and right. We're still figuring out their characters, and honestly, between you and me, I think it took most of the season for Avery Brooks to settle into the role of Cisco. Hmm. Whereas, and I'm going to quote Adam and Ben again, uh, Nana Visitor just yeah. acts like no one told her that she was a supporting character. Yeah. <laughs> Which, fair. Yeah, like that is perfect I, I, for Kira. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I like it. It's yeah. Good. Should we wrap up? Yes. <laughs> Have we? I I got to talk about Agnes, so I think yes. that was the only thing that I was worried about us not getting to because we were babbling. I was babbling. I'm not gonna like. I babble a lot. I apologize. No, I like your babble. I wouldn't have a podcast with you if I didn't enjoy your babble. Okay, good. I guess the people who listen to it feel the same. We get more listeners every week than my blog posts, and my blog posts are much more coherent. And I basically say the same things, but without you. So, you know, we're doing... We may not be the most polished podcast, but we're doing something okay. Okay, good. Woo, go us! Thank you for listening to AntimatterPod, even though we're not the most polished. You can find our show notes at, at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at, at antimatterpod. Sometimes we post cat pictures and questions for our audience, and we're still thinking about that Netflix party. If you like us, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks when we discuss our favourite villains in Star Trek. Woo!